What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? So I have received a lot of messages about the new HBO hit show, The Last of Us. And that's right, I'm going to talk about parasites and zombie parasites. Why? Because I'm going to, you know, hop on the bandwagon with the popularity of The Last of Us uh, and try and uh, get some of those views, right? But also... I did spend a good deal of time, five years, studying uh, parasites and specifically a parasite that does exactly what's happening in the show The Last of Us. Uh, it takes over its host. It turns its host into a zombie. Given, given this background, I've received uh, a lot of messages uh, from people uh, sharing articles, asking questions, making comments, asking if I've seen the show. I have not, but I am very familiar uh, with the franchise. Naturally, I, I took the chance to turn the microphone on and just sort of give some of my thoughts about this, about this phenomenon, the, the zombie parasite phenomenon, uh, some, of the, some of the takes that, you know, is this coming for us? Could this happen to humans? But in this episode, you'll get sort of my general take uh, on the phenomenon. I start with uh, just parasites, uh, some basic parasite knowledge uh, and why they're so cool, why they're so interesting uh, to biologists. A lot of people don't realize how common parasitism as a lifestyle is uh, and then the unique role that parasites play in ecosystems. And then we talk about the, the zombie phenomenon uh, specifically and I kind of give my sort of general um, spiel, we'll say, on the whole area uh, because it's incredibly fascinating and there's really interesting examples uh, of this phenomenon. The cordyceps fungus being one, this is the parasite that the show The Last of Us is, is modeled after. And it is a really interesting uh, example and popular example of this phenomenon, but you might not know exactly how it works. So I'll break down the latest findings uh, from the cordyceps world, which are now a couple years old, but it was really a dramatic finding when it was published about how the fungus actually controls its host. Because in a lot of these examples of host manipulation, we don't really know how the parasite does it. We can make uh, guesses that it is the parasite doing it, uh, but, but we don't know exactly how they do it. Uh, and then I'll talk about how we know or how we kind of assume that the parasite is doing it. What scenario would exist for a parasite to actually evolve this ability? It would need some kind of benefit, right? Like it would need some kind of push in that direction. And then I mention another famous example that people probably know, the Toxoplasma cat parasite that has, gets tons of headlines about it, you know, influencing human behavior and all this. And I briefly lay out why I don't think that's the best example and why there's there's some holes in that evidence. And I'll link to some articles uh, that kind of sort of lay that out in in more detail. And then I talk about the parasite system that I studied for five years doing my PhD and why I think, you know, I am biased, but why I think it's one of the best examples of this host manipulation phenomenon. And I'm always amazed that it doesn't get talked about more, that it's not more well known, uh, because it, 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 is, it is a really stunning example of parasite control of, of a host. So that's this episode. Like I said, I kind of just turned the mic on and let fly with my, my usual spiel that I give to uh, to people when they ask me about this. So if you want more detail, let me know uh, and I will 
I will do a few more episodes on this. Um, and I just want to say to everyone that reached out to me uh, to talk about this, uh, thanks. Thanks for getting in touch. Uh, you gave me an excuse to sit on my soapbox. Not that I needed one, but this time to talk about something that I really know well, uh, and that is zombie parasites and host manipulation. But first, as always, please subscribe, rate, review, wherever you get your podcasts. That helps out the show visibility a lot, and we want to increase, increase the show visibility. Uh, I also want to say thank you to everyone that did message me with articles or thoughts about this topic. I uh, got a lot of messages on Instagram, uh, so you can follow the show at 2 bread for you on Instagram and Twitter. You can go to the website toobradforyou.wordpress.com and find out all the other ways to get in touch with us. We have an email. We have a uh, voicemail box. Uh, you can leave a comment on the website. Uh, but again, please, please, please rate, subscribe, review wherever you're getting your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that good stuff. Or if you're using the Newsly app, which we are featured on. So we don't get paid or anything, but Newsly puts us in their feature tab. So hopefully we're getting some more visibility from that. Uh, and in exchange, we talk about what an interesting app Newsly is. And it is indeed an interesting app um, because it reads the internet for you. You're on the, the treadmill, you're, you're going to work, this is where you're normally listening to podcasts. Well, now you can get articles uh, read to you in the same way. So if you don't have time to sit and read the latest uh, New Yorker, I don't know, whatever you read, um, economist, this kind of thing, you can get those things read to you while you're doing other stuff. Um, browse articles from topics that you choose and then start playing. The tagline, of course, is stop scrolling, start listening. The whole internet becomes listenable for the first time all in one place. And they have podcasts as well. So you can explore the trending podcasts from 80 different countries. They also have digital radio. And of course, our podcast is there too. Too Brad for you on the feature app. If you download and use Newsly for free right now, www.newsly.me, www.newsly.me, or from the link that I've put in the description, and you use the promo code 2BRAD, all one word, T-W, capital T-W-O, capital B-R-A-D, you will receive a one-month premium subscription for free of Newsly. So check out Newsly. It's an interesting idea. It's a cool app. They've been kind enough to put us in their feature tab. So give it a try. Uh, Newsly.me uh, to get the app and to use Newsly. Get the internet read to you because we all hate reading, right? All right, well, let's get into it then. Zombies and zombie parasites. So the first things first, let's talk about parasites generally. Parasites can be any type of species. Anything can be a parasite. You have fungal parasites. You have insect parasites. You have the worm parasites, the flatworms and the roundworms, your tapeworms, your hookworms, these kind of things. You have amoeba that are parasites. You have bacteria that are parasites. You have plant parasites. In order to be a parasite, you have to parasitize a host. That's the definition. One party in the interaction, the parasite, gets a benefit from the host, while the other one, the host, is harmed in some way. So you're taking resources from it. It's a, there's an injury, something like this, right? 
This is what makes a parasite a parasite. And it's actually one of the most successful lifestyles on the planet. Some estimates from researchers say that up to 60% of all species on the planet may be parasites, live a parasitic lifestyle. And wow, what a lifestyle. Parasites are so fascinating from a biology point of view because they play a really important role in ecosystems. So because they harm hosts, so they like slow down hosts, they make them a little sick, that kind of thing, or in some cases they even kill hosts, they tend to play the same role in ecosystems that apex predators do. So sharks, lions, the big predators, these kind of things, which cull, you know, weak or sick members of the population, this kind of thing. Parasites actually play that same role. So they have a, a pretty significant say in the population sizes of the populations they parasitize. So that's the first thing. The second thing that makes them so interesting is they've evolved all of these fascinating, bizarre ways in which to carry out the parasitic lifestyle. So in general, as a parasite, you face several challenges. You need to get into a host, you need to get out of your host, and you need to be able to parasitize that host, extract the resources that you need from that host or use that host in the way that, that you need to. Sometimes uh, parasites are just in a host for a, a short time uh, and they use that host to get to the next host, which we will discuss shortly. But in terms of getting nutrients or something from the host, you have parasites that feed on blood. So hookworms, for example, have evolved these really gnarly mouths with these like hook-like kind of dagger teeth, and they latch onto the inside of your intestine, cause you to bleed, and then they like slurp up that blood. There's other parasites that have crazy enzymes where they break down tissue and then kind of slurp that up. Um, Fungus have a bunch of different things like that that they do. Uh, but there's these really, really fascinating and often, you know, morbid, gross kind of things that parasites have evolved in order to carry out these very specific tasks in very specific hosts. That's really fascinating from a biology point of view. And then add on top of that that you have the host who's constantly fighting back with their immune system and other ways uh, to avoid being parasitized or get rid of those parasites. And you have this really tight co-evolution, uh, arms race really, where parasite and host become so good at defending and exploiting each other that you get kind of a stalemate or you get such a tight relationship that sometimes there's a certain parasite that can only exploit a certain species. So it's a very specific tight relationship. Very, very fascinating stuff. This is why biologists, parasitologists geek out on this all the time, because you can just look at so many different adaptations and evolutionary pathways. And then you can look at the genetics of that. You can look at enzymes that they're using to do these things, uh, how they can avoid the immune system. It gives you all of these fascinating questions to look at how not only did the parasite evolve this, but how does the body act in response to that? So it gives you lots of insight about the immune system and all of these really, really interesting things. Okay, all of that aside, let's talk about what we came here to talk about, the zombie phenomenon. How did this evolve? Why would a parasite choose to take over its host? 
you have to think that that's probably a very costly strategy. When we think about evolution, we always talk about costs and benefits, right? So nothing, there's no free lunch, we say in biology. So if you're going to evolve a mechanism to take over the consciousness, the willful movements, the, the you know, the, the host, the, the mind of the, of the host, that's going to be kind of an expensive biology strategy. You probably have to have some kind of protein that you can produce that resembles a neurotransmitter of the nervous system in the host, something like this, right? And in a lot of cases, we don't really know how parasites are doing this. But anyway, what would be worth the cost of taking over the host like that? And what we see in nature is that for all of these parasites that do this mind control, they do it to get from one host to another. Let's take the fungus example from The Last of Us. The Last of Us is based on cordyceps. This is a parasitic fungus. It infects its insect host and then feeds on the tissue, but also kills that host in order to transmit itself to new hosts. So the way the story goes, fungal spores land on an ant, usually an ant, but there's a lot of different examples of this where there's a specific species of cordyceps fungus that parasitizes a very specific species of insect, crickets, butterflies, all, all sorts of different things. But the ants are the ones that we hear about the most, right? So the fungal spores land on the ant, they get into the, underneath the ant's cuticle, that's the ant's skin, they get into the ant body and they start to grow. So the fungus starts to grow within the ant and spreads out through the ant body. And then right before the fungus is about to produce its fruiting body, we call it, it's a specialized structure that the fungus grows that contains all the spores, which is the next generation uh, of the fungus. So you think about it like fungus offspring, maybe like fungal eggs or something like that, but it's a specific reproductive structure uh, that grows out of the fungus and then releases the spores into the environment. As that structure is getting ready to grow, the ant, the infected ants will climb up plants, trees, vegetation, uh, and they get to a very specific height. This usually occurs in tropical areas, fungus-like, damp, moist environments. So what the ant is doing is it's bringing its fungal parasite to a spot in the ecosystem, in the jungle, in the forest where it lives, where temperature and humidity are, are good. It's, it's suitable for, for the parasite. And it's also above where the other ants are walking around. So it's kind of perched above them, like 10, 20 centimeters, something like that, above the forest floor, which allows the fungal spores, when they do emerge and, and are released, to spread a longer distance. They can get on a breeze and kind of spray out over a larger area and infect more insects. So that's why it's beneficial for the parasite. We see a lot of other examples of this in parasites that have what we call complex life cycles. So parasites that have to move through several different hosts in order to get to the final host where they can develop to complete maturity to the adult stage and then reproduce and shed eggs. So one famous example is a parasite called Leucocoridium. Leucocoridium, I always pronounce that wrong, but it infects snails. It's a worm parasite. It infects snails, uh, grows inside the snail, and then needs to get into a bird. 
the bird is the next host. So how does it do this? All of the parasites that are inside the snail will actually migrate into the snail's antenna and start pulsating. And they make the snail antenna change color and like pulsate in a, in a very rhythmic way. And this makes it look like uh, a caterpillar. That's the theory, right? Is that it's making it look like a caterpillar. And these snails will actually kind of leave the cover that they normally take during the day, the shade and whatnot, and they'll stand out on a leaf and just let this antenna just blah, blah, pulsate out there. This attracts the eye of the bird that's looking for a wiggly worm to eat, a wiggly caterpillar to eat, and it will come down and pluck off that snail or pluck off that antenna, eat that, which is filled with parasites, and then complete the life cycle, right? We've also heard of the famous cat parasite, right? Toxoplasma. Now, I have some problems with this example because there's a really interesting paper from several years back. I actually wrote a guest blog about it in Scientific American. I'll link to both the paper and the guest blog in the show notes, which kind of calls into question the whole phenomenon uh, around toxoplasma, which you've probably heard about, which is that it makes mice and rats not afraid of cats so that the cats eat the rats infected with toxoplasma and, and complete the life cycle. There's also a lot of stories about how these things get into our brains. Toxoplasma gets into our brains, which is true. A lot of people have toxoplasma. Uh, it doesn't do anything to humans. You know, from a, from a negative standpoint, it kind of just sits there in your brain, which is weird to think about. But it's not until you have like a severe immune problem. So people with HIV and their immune system gets just decimated then these toxoplasma cysts emerge in the brain and can kill you. And it's because our body can just keep toxoplasma at bay, right? So once your immune system gets messed with, then you can't keep it at bay anymore and you have problems with toxoplasma. So again, no, most people don't have a problem with this at all. The other problem with it is it, the toxoplasma cysts, they can go through the umbilical cord into developing kids and cause problems uh, in the developing kids. The kids don't really have the immunity for it, uh, and it just it messes with the development and can kill you know, unborn babies. So that's why they tell pregnant women not to be around kitty litter, because cats shat out the, uh, the infective stages of, of toxoplasma. So there's all these stories about while does toxoplasma um, manipulate the human host, there's been these association studies where they look at people who have died doing risky things and they tend to have uh, toxoplasma infections. <sighs> the evidence is kind of weak that it does anything. And these two papers, this, uh, this paper that I, that I wrote about, shows really how the research on this is flawed. Some studies show that rats have this altered behavior, other ones don't. Uh, so it's not really, it hasn't really been replicated very well. And then they also lay out some evolutionary arguments as to why toxoplasma doesn't really need to get into a cat. It can reproduce asexually uh, in all of these different hosts. It, it infects like every mammal. Um, so there's really not that drive. The cost-benefit equation to take over the mind of its host isn't really there. So we can actually really question whether toxoplasma is manipulating its host at all. And I always point that out because toxoplasma is like the famous example that we always hear about in the sort of clickbaity uh, headlines. The other one, again, is the cordyceps. Uh, it, it gets its fair share of headlines and now it has its own video game franchise and hit TV show. But there's actually more to the story there too because... 
the cordyceps fungus actually doesn't take over the mind. It's not really so much a mind control as it is like a puppeteering of the body. So what some researchers found when they did these very high resolution um, scans of infected ants, they basically took infected ants and sliced them really, really thin into this like cross section and then looked at all of the slices and did some staining where, you know, you stain the ant tissue one color and the fungal tissue another color. And what they found is that the fungus actually grows into the muscles and the body of the ant, but never actually goes to like what we would consider the ant brain. So it's not doing a mind control per se, where it's manipulating the neurochemistry uh, of, of the host in order to make it go up this, this uh, vegetation and then have something burst out of its head. It's actually just controlling like the limbs. So you can think of it as the ant probably has, you know, its, its faculties about it, its wits about it, its mind is intact, but it's losing, slowly losing control of its body because a fungus has literally invaded the muscle tissue and started to act like a puppeteer and force the legs to move in the, in the direction that it wants it to go. This doesn't make it any less horrifying. In fact, you could argue that it makes it more horrifying that the ant has to watch uh, helplessly as, it's, as it loses control of its limbs, but its mind is still intact. That's crazy. So could this happen to humans? It seems unlikely just because the complexity and the amount of fungus that, that would have to grow into a human body to carry this out is enormous. Uh, so no, I don't think cordyceps are going to take over uh, humans uh, anytime soon. Um, and I think that what The Last of Us, again, I haven't seen the show yet, so I don't really know how they're, they're depicting it, but it probably comes down to more of a, a mind control thing. The fungus is in the mind and it's making it do these things. Uh, from what I understand, the, the infected, you know, human fungus monster things, they can move pretty fast, uh, that kind of thing, coordinated movements. That would be really hard for a fungus to do if it was following this path that the cordyceps does where it's invading the muscle tissue and, and going like that. But it's really interesting to think about how a fungus does that. Because remember, a fungus doesn't have a brain. Fungus are really interesting as, as an aside here just because they're not plants and they're not animals. They have features of both. So they don't do photosynthesis like plants. Their cells resemble plants in some ways but also resemble animal cells in other ways and they have to uh, get their own food like animals they don't produce their own food like plants so fungi are these really bizarre you know things already so maybe you know maybe they would have the ability to to take over a human i don't know but it's a fascinating fascinating example of this what i was talking about at the beginning this evolution how did it evolve to be able to do this. And it did it in a way that we didn't think of, right? We thought it's got to go into the mind. That's what's controlling the muscles and the, and the movements and everything like that is the brain. It would go into the brain, somehow hijack the brain, and then do what it wants. No, cordyceps is doing something completely different. Equally disgusting, equally horrifying, but completely different in a fascinating way. Now, fungal infections and fungal parasites are a problem set aside the mind control thing and climate change there is a link with climate change in that as temperatures increase it's going to change certain environments and make 
make them more amenable to these types of fungus. You've probably heard of white nose syndrome, which is infecting bats all around the world. It's this fungus that uh, parasitizes bats. It makes their it grows on their on their nose, so they get this white kind of fungus moldy thing growing on their nose. It kills bats. It's wiping out bat populations across uh, North America. And as temperatures increase and make it more favorable for the fungus, that's just going to spread, right? There's another one, um, aspergliosis, aspergliosis, again, pronouncing it wrong, uh, that gets into the lungs of humans. So people that work in uh, agriculture, they're digging in soil, stuff like this. You see it a lot in places, uh, subtropical places, uh, India, uh, places like this, where people are working with their hands in the soil, they're working really closely with the soil. Um, they'll get these uh, spores in their lungs, uh, the fungus grows in their lungs, kills them, not good. But this too, there's evidence that this too is spreading uh, because it's it's just the, the conditions are, are favor favorable for it in more and more places. So yeah, there is a concern uh, about fungal diseases and fungal parasites just not the mind control one that we're seeing on our TV screens. Now, let me wrap this up by talking about my favorite example, and I think the underrated example of host manipulation. And that is Dicrocelium dendriticum, which is a worm. So we've talked about the fungus, which is a unique type of, type of creature. We've talked about Toxoplasma, which is a single-celled organism that gets into the brain. So if there is some kind of manipulation going on there, you could see that it's it's in the brain. It's probably has some kind of chemical means by which it's it's uh, affecting its host. And we talked about leucocaridium, which is related to uh, dicrocidium. It's it's a it's a it's a worm as well, but it kind of just goes into a certain specific area of the snail body and and does its thing it's not really controlling the snail per se right not controlling the mind it's going into an area maybe you could think of it as it's it's hobbling the the snail and making it more likely to get eaten uh, but it's not really that mind control that 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 we want to talk about here that that we're, that's so dramatic digrocelium has everything in a mind control story it's the most precise and specific example of mind control that I've encountered in, in the biological world. So let me tell you the story of what's known colloquially as the lancet liver fluke. This thing uh, lives as an adult in the livers of grazing mammals. So things like sheep, deer, uh, cattle, it reproduces uh, in the liver. Uh, it's a hermaphrodite, so it just buddies up with whoever produces eggs, and then those eggs are pooped out onto the pasture. Snails come along, eat those eggs, uh, and the parasite develops in the snail asexually. So it produces a bunch of clones of itself inside the snail. So you got hundreds or thousands of these you know, tiny little parasite stages inside the snail. The snail then coughs that up. So it gets rid of this whole mass of parasites in what we call a slime ball. Just kind of pukes it up onto the, onto the pasture. Then ants come along and they eat these slime balls. We don't know if a single ant eats just one or he brings it back to the nest. I should say she brings it back to the nest and they all eat on it. We don't really know exactly, but ants get infected by these, these slime balls. And so most of the parasites that then are in the ant 
move to the back end of the ant, to the abdomen. And they just make little cysts and they just sit there and they wait. But there's a single one, it's only just ever one, that goes up to the ant brain, wraps itself around the ant brain. We have great images of this uh, from, from microscopic images of this parasite worm wrapping around this like bundle of nerves that's kind of around the jaw of the, of the ant that you can consider kind of like the ant brain. And these ants then climb up vegetation, similar to the fungus, right? Climb up vegetation, but they lock on to the underside of leaves or flowers or things like that, and they wait. Obviously waiting for grazing mammals to come along and eat those leaves or eat those flowers and ingest the ants so that they can then emerge and go into the liver and complete the life cycle. Pretty standard, right? Sounds a lot like the fungus. But here's the amazing difference. The fungus brings the ant to the location and then kills it. It's over. It's dead. It's a, it's a one-way street. Once the, once the ants are infected with the fungus, they're dead. Once they climb up that vegetation, the fungus shoots out of its head and sprays its spores everywhere, and it kills the ant. Right? It has no more need for the ant. The worm is a little different because if the ant dies without getting eaten by the next host, the parasite also dies. So there's a vested interest in the parasite to keep this ant alive until it gets eaten. And so how does it do that? It does that by turning its control on and off, which is a very specific ability that you don't see in all these other systems. Like I said, most of these other systems, it's kind of a one-way street. So the fungus just kills the ant and lets its spores go out. You see other examples where, like leucocridium, where it kind of just hobbles the host, uh, waiting for it to get eaten. This one is super precise in that it turns the control on and off. And it turns it on and off by temperature. So these ants will only do this clinging behavior when the temperature is about 18 degrees Celsius or lower. So this means that they're usually out there at dawn and dusk, which again just happens to coincide with peak grazing times for most grazing mammals. But as soon as that temperature gets about 19, 20 degrees, you can see these ants will just let go and leave the plant. The other added benefit of this is that the ant host won't dry out. It won't starve by just staying attached in the heat of the sun all day. So the, the parasite actually lets it go. Now, there's a bunch of you know, fascinating questions about this system that we don't really know yet. Does that ant, does the parasite just totally kind of let go control? The ant sort of wakes up in a fog and it's like, what was I doing up there? And then goes back to doing normal ant activities, foraging, defending the nest, whatever it may be, right? You would think that that's probably the case uh, because you know, how would the parasite you know, it would be a, such a fine-tuned control if it could say, okay, don't cling to the plants anymore, but also don't do anything dangerous. Just go to the nest and sort of hide, right? That would be in the parasite's best interest. But that's, a, again, a really fine-tuned control. Plus, you would have all the pheromones in the ant nest, you know, communicative singles, signals between the ants telling the ant, the infected ant, to go, you know, gather food or do whatever it needs to do. But this is a question that we don't know. We don't know what those infected ants do when they're not clinging. My guess is they probably just act like normal ants. 
again, that's a risk to the parasite because, you know, ant life is dangerous and you could die without getting to your next host. But then, as soon as the temperature drops again, those ants go back out, sometimes to the exact same flower, and they cling again, waiting to get eaten. So they'll do this for the rest of their lives, this sort of day-night cycle of climbing up a plant, clinging on, waiting to get eaten, and then going back to the nest. So that is amazing in terms of the level of control that, that this parasite is exhibiting over its host. And it's got to be doing it through some sort of chemical, chemical means, is my hypothesis. Again, we don't know exactly how the parasite is controlling the host, but it is interacting with that, that it's physically interacting with that nerve bundle, that ant brain structure. But it's not like the fungus in that it's growing into the muscles and controlling it that way. It's a tiny little worm that just sits there. The other fascinating thing about this parasite is that we think about how this behavior, this ability evolved, right? You can see that there's the evolutionary pressure to find a way to get into the next host. You know, if you're a parasite that's gotten into this ant and you need to get into a grazing mammal, how are you going to do that? So that the conditions are there for this, for this to evolve. But because you have multiple parasites in the ant, you have the one in the brain, and you have a bunch in the back of the ant just waiting, you have a situation where the one in the brain is potentially sacrificing itself for all the ones in the back end of the ant. Now, we don't know exactly, again, an unanswered question, if the one in the brain becomes infective, meaning when it gets eaten, when the ant gets eaten, does the one in the brain also go on to become an adult in the liver, or does it die? The presumption is, is that it dies because it's not protected in the cyst like the ones in the back. So the, the stomach acid is, might kill it before it ever gets to the liver. If that's true, then this, this parasite is sacrificing itself for all of the other ones in the back end of the end. Which again, an amazing complex sort of situation where you have questions like, well, how do you decide which one goes to the front? How do you pick which guy is going to sacrifice himself? Uh, is it the first one in? Is there a chemical cue? All of that. And then you also have this question of kin selection. Why would you sacrifice yourself for somebody? In evolutionary theory, the explanation for this behavior is that you would sacrifice yourself for someone you're closely related to because you share a, a similar amount of genes so, for example, siblings, you share like 50% of your genes are like the same in your siblings. So if you sac sacrifice yourself for a sibling, a lot of the same genes are going to get passed on. So this is the sort of evolutionary explanation that people use for why you see relatives sacrificing their self for other relatives. But we don't really understand how related all the parasites are in the ant. This was part of the thing I did. This was part of my PhD work, actually. We actually did a genetic analysis of, of the, the one in the head and the, one in the, uh, and the ones in the back. And we found that while they're not all clones, so it would make a lot of sense if they're clones, because then it doesn't matter. It's 100% of the genes are the same. So it doesn't matter who sacrifices what. All of those genes are getting passed on. They're not all clones but they are very closely related. So the kin selection theory does seem to fit in this system. 
but this is also takes a really gene's eye view of of evolution and that it's all about passing on the genes it's all about you know just what percentage of genetic material gets passed on to the next uh to the next generation and there's a lot of uh, new uh, biology biology theories a lot of a lot of different ways of thinking about things that that say that evolution acts on more than just genes so there might be more going on uh, in this system but the point being why don't people talk about dicrocelia more this is one of the most fascinating examples of host manipulation it's got an on and off switch it's got kin selection it's got it's got a great unknown question as to how it's manipulating its host how it's doing such fine-tuned control it's just it's a great great example of zombie parasites uh, it doesn't have the same, quote, nagging questions that Toxoplasma has, where it's like, uh, is it really controlling the host? Is it not? Um, it's just a really, really neat, neat, neat parasite. Uh, and the Cordyceps is cool, too. Uh, something about fungal parasites is just disgusting. The idea of a fungus, you know, growing in you, growing on you, it's just, it's just gross, right? So... I would put cordyceps up there right beside dicrocelium in terms of fascinating host manipulating parasites. But there's lots of other examples. Um, but I have to say dicrocelium, I think, is is the best. So once again, to everyone that, that reached out and, and, and left a message about uh, parasites and zombie parasites, all you know, having to having to do with uh, The Last of Us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It gave me an opportunity to talk about this subject, which I just, again, find so fascinating. Uh, and if you want more of this kind of content, send me a message. Let me know. I'm, I will happily talk about all the different ways uh, I think the Toxoplasma story doesn't quite fit. Uh, I'll talk more about dicrocelium and the really interesting questions people are looking at with that. We can talk more about uh, cordyceps as well. But let's just say, as much as I love parasites, they are gross. I think they're really disgusting. Um, but it's just so fascinating. There's just they're too interesting to to not enjoy uh, learning about. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you again to everyone that's reached out. Please reach out. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Too Brad for You on both. Go to the website tobradforyou.wordpress.com and, and check out all the other ways you can get in touch with us. Please rate, subscribe, review wherever you're getting your podcast, and check out the Newsly app www.newsly.me that's www.newsly.me as always freak motif with the music and thank you and take care of yourselves bye for now